thought it was the announcement of Game of Thrones winning Best Drama Series at the Emmys. Victory. <laughs> Yet again. For the second year in a row. It's well-deserved. Game of Owns, the podcast for television's most winningest drama series. Mm. That is true. It has a ring so, to it. Don't doesn't make you feel like a winner yourself. Like you feel personally responsible even though you had nothing to do with it. I feel like I've said that before. I was disappointed because I thought that both David Benioff and Dan Weiss should have thanked us personally mm. for this podcast. Mm. But you know yeah, what? Yeah, that's the thing. Maybe next year. I saw Brian up there too and you know, I thought maybe he would jump in, but it didn't happen. No. <laughs> but <laughs> in all seriousness though, I mean, I remember Zach episodes um, in years past where we would get on and the Emmys wouldn't even be a topic of conversation that we would want to have because we were just so frustrated that it the show didn't get the recognition that it deserved. And now here we are for the second straight year uh, with Game of Thrones um, winning really the top honor uh, of the night in addition to uh, two other categories, which, um, you know, I think uh, was expected in at least one. Uh, for outstanding directing for a drama series went to uh, Miguel Sapochnik for Battle of the Bastards and then also to Dave Benioff and Dan Weiss for outstanding outstanding writing for a drama series also for Battle of the Bastards. So the Bastards cleaned up at the Emmys. <laughs> it is a little different now um, compared to a few years ago. Just uh, I can imagine around the workplace, Micah. I know that some of your coworkers at the NBA listen to the podcast. They do. And before it was much more of a niche thing, like oh that that show on on HBO with swords and shields. And now it's it's you know Game of Thrones. Let's follow the celebrities around in foreign locations as they're filming for the next season. Most winningest winningest show mm-hmm. in Emmy history. Pretty pretty interesting last few years. Yeah. Three pretty big honors for Game of Thrones at the Emmys. Of course, they cleaned up at the Creative Arts Emmys, which took place the weekend before. Uh, The two categories that the show fell short in were for Best Supporting Actor and Actress. And um, we were saying on our Squadcast a a little earlier. Really? Right? Sort of. In which category, though? Did you think that they should have won in both? No, I mean, I guess I just was kind of surprised with, I guess, not so much in Supporting Actor. Um, not that I didn't think that either of them did well, but I felt especially in supporting actress that Game of Thrones should have taken that. But I guess when you have so many people up, it, the vote gets split and oh, that's a good point. It's hard to kind of rally mm-hmm. behind the series, or you um, just can't beat Professor McGonagall. Well, <laughs> yeah, there is that, <laughs> or that, which I mean, fair. But I was a little surprised by that. Yeah, it was too. I mean, I thought that it was probably up between, in, in my mind, anyway. Um, and definitely feel free to jump in um, with with Lena Headey and and Maisie Williams. I mean, I thought Arya. I, I've every season I've loved Arya, and it was awesome to see her finally get a nomination for the role. Um, but I'm in agreement. Probably the vote was split there. Also, maybe a little bit with Amelia Clark. So. Uh, you know, unless they just, they love Maggie Smith. I think that's what it comes down to. And, and there's a really great, um, segment with Jimmy Kimmel who hosted the show at the very beginning. He talks about the fact that if Maggie Smith wins another Emmy because she never shows up <laughs> to the show, <laughs> that he's going to take it, um, and, and not 
have it sent to her that she's going to have to come out to uh, Los Angeles and, and, and pick it up. And so sure enough, when she won the award, Jimmy Kimmel walked out and just like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Poor Maggie Smith. But my favorite moment of the whole night is I'm going to butcher this so badly, but when um, Andy Samberg and Kay Harrington are up on the stage together and I can't remember exactly what their banter was, but they're talking about Kyle Chandler, the world's hottest dad. And <laughs> Andy Samberg says that he, something along the lines of, I won't kiss you, Kyle Chandler. And then Kit Harrington's like, yes, I will kiss you, Kyle Chandler. And I was like, wow, all my wildest dreams coming true. I'm jealous. <laughs> I was, was in, in football heaven that night in Minnesota. It was good. I mean, it was a fun, it was a fun night. It's always a good time, especially when Game of Thrones takes it away. And and for those of you who also uh, are fans of Stranger Things, there was a great moment um, with those kids who were there as well. So I thought all in all, yeah, I agree. Great show. Um, glad that Game of Thrones continues to get the recognition that we all feel that it deserves. Can I say, though, how much I, I really enjoyed reading these chapters? I, think I feel like we do that episode. every week. In particular, last week with, with Brendan, um, he he loved the Davos chapter. Oh, special shout chapter, out to right? Brendan B. Fish, our friend Jeff, for the birth of his daughter, Olivia, in this past week between so sweet. his episode with us and now. Congratulations. I believe she was born on George R. R. Martin's birthday. Oh. That's too perfect. So we'll dedicate this episode to her and her parents. Aww. So these two chapters are, you know, they're dark um, in their own respective ways. I think Danny is going through a lot in terms of her decision making and ability to rule over Marine. And there's just so many different things to talk about there. You know, how can she effectively move forward? As a ruler, there you know it's just just the internal conflict uh, that she's facing, and for Reek, I mean, <laughs> reading about Reek from his perspective, I don't know. It's just so cool how George R. R. Martin writes this character. He, it, what I loved about the chapter, and we can get into it later because I know he's really the second chapter, but. The fact that you're almost reading from the perspective of an animal, right? Mm -hmm. As I was going through, I was highlighting all the different um, sort of descriptions. It's like you're reading it from the perspective of, you know, John inside of Summer, or sorry, inside of Ghost, or Bran inside of Summer. Or like Sixkins from the prologue almost. Yeah, exactly. And, And it's just, it's carnal in a way, and... It just shows the complete and utter de-evolution of his character and and where he is at this moment. So we went from very happy and cheery at the beginning to, yeah. I, know. <laughs> I don't know what it's going to be by the end. but By the end of this when we we'll see. dive deep into Reek. But I don't know. I felt like in this Danny chapter, I feel there is so much to unpack. And I've been kind of nervous because I feel between this prophecy that happens and what she's going to do about the fighting pits and just her musings on what she needs to be doing here in marine that there's such huge weight on danny's shoulders and i kind of felt that a little bit while we were reading through this chapter 
as we get deeper into the uh, Feast of Dragons, a lot of these chapters, especially uh, this this Daenerys one, um, and 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 most of her arc through A Dance with Dragons, it's just the pressure of the level of the conversation that needs to happen in relation to it is is staggering. And the only thing we can do is you know read it as George intended by looking at the words that he wrote down. And to tell each other how it made us feel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For me, I just, knowing what we know from the show, but also from having read um, the series in, the, in its original order, I look at this chapter with Daenerys after the last time we met with her. Uh, it's been, it's, this is her second chapter in A Dance with Dragons, but for us in the podcast and also for her in the show, it was separated by a significant amount of time. And, I'm seeing even more so than her first chapter in the book, the foundation of what is to be her arc through A Dance with Dragons laid out. The relationship with her and the Shave Pates, the relationship with her. We don't touch with the Green Graces, but there is a mention of the kind of influence they have and the kind of uh, relationship that they'd like to see her have with the Miranese people, with their culture and with their tradition. There's a building with Masande. There's her decision with the Unsullied in their removal from the interior of the city and her decision to let the Miranese sort of police themselves. And of course, a very fateful visit by his Darzo Lorak <laughs> and seven highly decorated champions, slaves of the Miranese fighting pits. And what has to be one of the most bombastic, just when you think about it, it's laid out in front of you. Like imagine if that scene would have been captured on film rather than just reading it. Mm-hmm. Those costumes and the the bravado of those people there like what an outstanding scene yeah mm-hmm. totally yeah there's all that plus as hannah said like tons more to unpack right you have a visit from quaith right no big deal a massive prophecy of sorts that she kind of just drops on the doorstep there under the uh persimmon tree you have Barristan Selmy's story of how he escaped King's <laughs> Landing, but not really because he snuck back in. Mm-hmm. You find out how she was able to chain two of her dragons and failed in the attempt to chain Drogon. And you have this other story of the young girl who we know or supposedly was burned to death by Drogon and is now her father is being forced to tell a complete lie in the hopes of protecting Daenerys. And so there's all that just yeah. in this one chapter. And then we got to get to Reek. So it's, I mean, there's, there's just a ton of stuff to, to jump into in Danny's chapter. I feel like it's going to be this way the rest of the series though, man. I think so too, because I think that not that there isn't a lot of heavy stuff to unpack in the earlier books but i think that coming from the perspective that we're at where we know more we have so many questions here that we don't have the answers to yet and so i feel like there's more of that burden of uncertainty but there is this one line that i felt like that danny says kind of a couple pages into the chapter that i think is a great theme for kind of everything that's going on she talks about how she's a dragon and this is when she can't sleep um and she's thinking about how much she can't control how much work there is still to do and talking about she's a dragon and dragons can kill the sons of the harpy, that situation that is currently on her mind, but that dragons can't feed hungry children and they can't ease a woman's pain. Um, and I think that that says so much about what she's going through right now. She has this power with her dragons, but she doesn't have the power to control everything um, and try to navigate that. So I just thought that that line was particularly important when thinking about all these 5 million things she's kind of dealing with. Yeah. There's a couple of analogies in the chapter to her 
um, having characteristics of a dragon. It said that Fury was a fire in her belly, um, you know, as she's trying to make a decision as to what to do uh, following the death of Missandei's brother, as well as a few other of the Unsullied. There's actually another line in here, too, and, and I feel like this is her constant battle that she faces as she continues to rule over Marine. Uh, it said, every night the shadow war was waged anew beneath the stepped pyramids of Marine. Every morn the sun rose upon fresh corpses with harpies drawn in blood on the bricks beside them. Any freed man who became too prosperous or too outspoken was marked for death. And it's just like night in, night out. This is what she's confronted with. This is what she has to deal with. And, you know, she's not sure necessarily who she can trust other than, you know, those that she keeps closest to her in Missande and Grey Worm in Barristan Selmy and maybe a few others, um, especially after that visit mm-hmm. from Quaith. I think right, she continues exactly. to doubt who is really loyal to her. It's like having this constant reminder of not only dealing with these situations, but the fact that she's got this visit to remind her again, you know, hey, who can you actually trust? And her ability to judge. I mean, she goes from talking to to Resnack saying, okay, I want you to interrogate this man <laughs> sweetly, the, the, you know, the the man who owned the sort of the wine keep that, that some of her unsullied frequented and then, you know, not less than a quarter of a page later, she says, actually, I want you to question the man sharply. <laughs> yeah. And he says, well, I could question the daughter sharply while the father looks on. That <laughs> would definitely make something happen. And she's like, well, whatever, do what you got to do. Whatever. <laughs> Danny's doing, she's ruling this great storied city with pyramids and shadowy streets and folks getting murdered underneath her watch. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and there's a, a lot of weight to what she's doing. I understand. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the reality of what was happening, not that it hadn't said him before, but, you know, when she sees what it does to Masande, someone that she's grown to love with losing her brother, I think that it just sort of clicked in her mind like this is this has to end. And, uh, you know, I'm here to do well for these people. I know that we, we really shook them up culturally, but she believes that. You know, the, the, the bulk of her people, the bulk of the people that were in Marine, uh, you know, deserve to be freed and, you know, they're paying the price for it slowly but surely. And that's the, the reality of this arc, the sort of marriage of what she'd like it to be. And we've gone through it with other, uh, plot lines with Danny in the past, right? It almost in, uh, a different way with her relationship with the Dothraki and how she was coming into mm-hmm. their culture. And how Viserys was coming into their culture and how that clashed together, you know, and it's it's just in a different way happening here, except like she says to Quaith, um, she was a beggar in Karth, but now she sits atop of a great pyramid, a queen of a great city. And I, yeah. I do think that Quaith says something super important to Danny throughout their exchange, telling her to remember who she is. And I think that as she continues to make decisions in Marine and continues to navigate this super murky political landscape that as long as she remembers who she is and why she's here and I guess keeping her eye on the prize essentially that that's going to be that's going to lead her in the direction that that she needs to go and as soon as she gets caught up in things that are outside her I think is when she's going to start getting herself in trouble yeah like when she's bandying about political words with the Shapates and Resnack and and it eventually gets a little bit deeper as the story goes on that's not her strong suit and I feel like that 
that meeting with Quaith following was kind of like the, not necessarily the second half of this chapter, but after seeing her not necessarily in her element in the first part of the chapter and then having Quaith remind her, hey, you should be yourself. And mm-hmm. at the end of the chapter, Danny says something like, uh, if there are monsters, so am I. I know that that sounds hectic, but we've seen Daenerys be at her best when she accepts herself for who she is. And uh, I think that it's important to, to note in this chapter that I feel like that's the point that was trying to be driven across. So we can only assume that the political stuff may not go fantastically for her. No, it's yeah. it's a great point. I mean, we've we've talked a lot over the course of the book chapter very analysis. very smart writing. And seasons, yeah, about how she is just, she struggles to rule. And, and I think it's, it's because it's something that you have to learn over time. And, and to your point about Quaith reminding her of who she is, I mean, she, you know, she has this great idea that uh, of how to solve the problem with these local craftsmen and, and that are losing their jobs because all of the free people that she is, or sorry, all the slaves that she had freed are basically going out there and doing the work of these craftsmen for little to no money, um, you know, in order to, to earn a living. And, and so, um, you know, I, I just think that there, there's so many like political undertones here and, and problems that she has to try and solve that, you know, I, I don't know that you necessarily get a sense of that um, from watching the show. I mean, the sons of the harpy are ever present and they're just this constant threat but outside of of the the farmer who brings his young daughter corpse burned i don't and and the constant pleadings of his darzolorak to open the fighting pits i don't know if you get a true sense for mm. all these little political machinations that she has to deal with all these decisions that she has to make that are ultimately are going to lead in one direction or the other in terms of having the people of marine support her um, yeah. or be against mm-hmm. her. I think that's why Marine fell so flat in the show. It's hard. I mean, it's yeah. hard to capture all that, the nuance of that. So how about the prophecy? It says, the glass candles are burning. Soon comes the pale mare and after her, the others. Kraken and dark flame, lion and griffin, the sun's sun and the murmur's dragon. Trust none of them. Remember the undying. Beware of the perfume seneschal. Mm. All right. The glass candles are burning. Okay. Check. Check. Yeah. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Old town, right? Mm-hmm. Oh mm-hmm. man, I'm so excited. Soon comes the pale mare. Do we do we think that the pale mare is the sickness, or do we think it's too on the nose and maybe something else? I think so. No, I mean, yeah, I think that the the first thing I thought of is it kind of is reminiscent of the pale horse that death mounts in Revela- the Book of Revelations. Mm. So I would assume plague, sickness, death. I think that's all kind of in line there. What about Kraken and Dark Flame? What could that possibly be? Mm. A Greyjoy. Maybe a Blackfire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are house symbols, right? Yeah, yeah. we've got Kraken, Dark Flame, so we can assume that's Greyjoy, Blackfire, Lion and Griffin. That's uh, Lannister. Tyrion and John Connington. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Son's son. Yeah. Frog mm-hmm. himself. And the Mummer's Dragon, which uh, is not a true dragon, but... A mummer's dragon. Well, good job yeah, to you. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> I don't think we've gotten to that point in the book yet, but yeah, it's hard to say because I know that there's been a, a ton of theorizing in terms of talking about whether or not the the mummer's dragon refers to another Targaryen or a fake Targaryen for that matter. Um, but I wonder if it could mean something else. I'm sure it can. It's especially uh, confusing with the dark flame 
included in there because another theory about the Mummer's Dragon, if the Mummer's Dragon is the Mummer's Dragon, is that the Mummer's Dragon is a dark, is a black fire, or at least connected in some way. Yeah. So uh, why would there be a double up? So I feel like maybe one is wrong. Maybe one, one has to be wrong. One might mean something else. Um, could Dark Flame be one of the red priests or priestesses? Just thinking about like possible. fire, at least. I don't yeah, know. It's definitely possible. Whatever the Kraken represents at this point, we don't quite know. Um, we know that Victarion's on his way. We know that, you know, just in general, the Kraken is interested in what's happening in Marine. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with Danny not trusting any of the Greyjoys at this point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course, all the while the glass candles are burning, uh, which hopefully has the ability to connect a lot of these things. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about us getting to the point where we're talking about this at all in our read through. And I, you know, I just, I don't know. I hunger for these kinds of chapters. And that's one of the, the things that I think is going to be fun about A Feast with Dragons because we're still going to have Brienne traveling and going to the whispers and stuff in the middle of this kind of storytelling. And I think that that's going to be a, a fun journey. But when we read A Feast for Crows and then we read A Dance with Dragons specifically, I just felt like they just had colors in my mind. And I, I saw the desert so much in A Dance with Dragons. And uh, now it's just kind of an amalgamation. And I'm really excited. What about the um, perfumed Seneschal? Well, Danny does no sniff Resnick, Mo Resnick suspiciously <laughs> in like the next paragraph, like the next couple of paragraphs. He wears cologne, not perfume. I don't know. I'm just making that up. But I don't know. That's tough. What about Varys? I have no I mean, idea. Ah! He's, they always talk about how he powders himself and smells good. Dude. Yeah, that's. I can get on board with that. But why though? That's Are you I mean, that? I would. Well, I guess given given his allegiance, which you know is is made pretty clear by the end of this, he could be seen as a threat if, in fact, he's he backs the Mummer's Dragon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where his allegiance lies. So I I don't know. It, it's it's hard to say because you know, kind of keeping with with the book versus what we've seen in in the television show. Clearly, he seems to have forged an alliance. Um, you know, with the Martells and Highgarden and Tyrion and Daenerys and and so and and the Greyjoys. So, uh, but he could he could be just as fake as 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 anybody. So I I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I feel like the show after its treatment of the Mirren East storyline. I think that really anything you do after that. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that we can consider it. Ice and fire cannon, you know. I don't, I don't, I just don't see the, the, the Varys storyline. Let's if we just zoom in on him, not even talk about Danny and everyone else. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I see the Varys storyline coming out like that, as squeaky clean as that is uh, in the books. But I could be wrong. It could, you know, go through a lot of conflict and eventually get there. Uh, I think you're, I think you're probably right though, in the sense of taking taking what we see on screen with more of a grain of salt than we do with at least now for sure right the new stuff yeah and especially that's that's the thing especially i think we we've talked about this before is especially when we're kind of forging into new territory it's hard to take those kinds of things that we're learning that we haven't yet learned in the books as canon when i mean who knows what's going to happen before we get there i mean it's really fun Mm -hmm. to watch it's cool to see. Oh, it's the best. It's my favorite. Asha and and Danny on screen hanging out like that, and Theon uh, on the way there. But you know, for us, Theon is still at the bottom of a dungeon. Yeah, we leave him not in too different of a. I mean, he's still he's just burgeoning from his from his new namesake. 
But anyway, a seneschal is a steward of a, ma- a medieval great house, and the second top definition for it is a governor or other administrative or judicial officer. Those are both historical definitions, and I feel like both of them uh, describe uh, Varus, but they also uh, – one particularly describes if we want to go after who she's smelling Resnick, Moresnik. So this is quite the mystery. Yeah. Well, it raises a lot of questions in Daenerys' mind, too, because – she thinks that it's possible with the experience that she has with Quaith that she could be losing her mind and, and she compares herself to her father at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you know, she seems to be a little bit on edge ar- around Resnick Moresnik and, and wondering, you know, is this guy going to be the one who betrays me or is he just as he seems? And and I think that's really, unless you're inside these characters' minds as you go through the series, especially in, in this part of the world, that's, that's just the question with every character that you meet is, are they what they seem on, on the surface or is there a deeper plot that they're working towards? It's the Game of Thrones out east. Yeah. I wonder what it's called out there. Is it still called the Game of Thrones? Pyramids? No, <laughs> there's still doesn't have the same ring to it. Yeah, but Danny's right. Prophecies are treacherous, so she's playing her cards close to her chest, just like she feels like everyone else is doing, and just like mm-hmm. she should probably. Honestly, she's like, well, what if I put him in chains? Or what if I have him killed? Like, would that stop the prophecy, or would a- another Seneschal like come in his place? If this is the guy. It's just, I don't know. I, I guys, what, what are we gonna do about Quaith? Like, what is gonna happen? Who is she? I feel like, <laughs> I feel like this is one there? of those things where we need to put a pin in it for when we finish A Feast of Dragons and just go through back with our highlighters again once we've gone through A Feast of Dragons and tear it apart again. Well, how did she get there under that persimmon tree? What a deck with its hot baths and f- fish baths and how did she get there? She's got her own entrance, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. She shows up in a lot of unusual places, right. that's for sure. And she's like, they couldn't see me, but you can. Mm. What does it mean? This is the last thing Danny glory. needs today. I know. So, Zach, as you mentioned earlier um, in the show, though, she is once again confronted by his stars of Lorak and his nine, oh, sorry, his seven splendid warriors to reopen the fighting pits. And it seems to me that by the end of this chapter, she may be leaning in that direction. Well, I mean, you've got all these guys rolling up who are celebrated in their craft, who are talking about their lifelong, fulfilling their lifelong dreams of fighting, who are the best at what they do. I think it was a good political move in terms of, mm-hmm. I mean, bring all your best guys and show Danny the good that it's doing for the, for the city. I think it was a really persuasive argument. I want to, very deft way for George to sort of represent the cruel nature that Danny at least thinks is the cruel nature of this society um, in one conversation through the likes of someone like the spotted cat. But when she says the last time I was sold, the price was 300,000 honors. When I was a slave, I slept on furs and ate red meat off the bone. Now that I'm free, I sleep on straw and eat salt fish when I can get it. It's a trade off that is represented through the words of these fighters, previous slaves that you know even though even though you feel like you're doing something that's right mm-hmm. it was a, it was a system that you know we all did before it's her learning though too i mean i i think that that's part of her evolution as as a ruler is that you have to 
compromise. And, and she, you know, she saw it earlier on in the chapter where a lot of those that she had freed were, were taking away these jobs um, from people who had spent their whole life learning a craft, right? And so she has to find resolution there. And similarly, as you just mentioned, you know, she's seeing the same thing with these warriors who are making their living off of, of, of these fighting pits and now they have nothing. And so she needs to find a way to make it right, not just for those that she's freed, but for those who, you know, who are, you know, sort of the everyday citizens of, of Marine. But are, are these people who are so good at their craft, the everyday citizens of Marine? Cause you also, I also am thinking about the little guys who are going to turn to this cause it's their only option or they feel like they don't have any, Thing else to bring them money or glory mm-hmm. and so i don't know i think it's such a tough i think it's a tough thing that she's faced with and i don't know what the answer is and i'm glad i don't have to make that decision for her to remember who she is and not right get involved in it in the first place maybe i guess i don't know society and ruling and balancing and pleasing everyone pleasing the top the bottom and the middle you know, it seems like it's an almost impossible task. And we put those who are in charge of those questions at task for the way that they handle that task. And mm-hmm. it's, 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 we're, we're, we're seeing it through, uh, the eyes of Daenerys Targaryen that George R. R. Martin has so deftly written in this chapter with, with things in this medieval society representing those different decisions and with characters like Hisdar representing those different, uh, people who influence those decisions and these fighters representing, like you said, just a, a very small part of the overall society of Marine, but yet their needs still matter. And so how do you please them with pleasing everyone else? And that's that's really what she's concerned with here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the prophecy almost didn't help or Quaid's visit didn't help because uh, it's just more confusion. I mean, it was great advice. That's what Danny should, that's what they, everyone should do at the end of the day. It's just be true to themselves. So I don't know. It's tough because how do we say, yes, Daenerys, you should be uh, a dictator, a ruler with an iron fist, with dragons, with fire and blood. But, you know, how do we say the alternatives any better? Right. Right. I mean, that that's the challenge that she faces. And you see that it's not just like cut and dry. It's not mm-hmm. an easy decision every time. There's complexities to every single situation that she has to face as a ruler. And remember, she's also very young. I mean, she's but that's why she has people around her like Barristan Salmi, who in this chapter, I thought just you know, upped himself 10 levels or more for yet, like a hundred levels of mm-hmm. badassery <laughs> with, his thought that was possible. <laughs> with his escape from King's Landing, mm-hmm. his re-entry into King's Landing and his ability to just kind of mix in with the crowd and get himself to the point where then he could travel across the narrow sea and seek out Daenerys. And what I really liked about his story was, of course, the point where he got to Ned Stark. This week's episode of Game of Owns is sponsored by Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you. So it's important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. 
For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. We've been seeing some of your Blue Apron photographs on Instagram. There's lots of pretty colors. And I think it's become standard practice to take a picture of your final meal and try to make it look like the recipe card that comes in the mail alongside the ingredients. So keep that up. And we thank Blue Apron for their continued support of Game of Owns. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash owns. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash O-W-N-S. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Micah, tell us the story of Bears and Sell Me. When I reached the stables, the gold cloaks tried to seize me. Joffrey had offered me a tower to die in, but I had spurned his gift, so now he meant to offer me a dungeon. The commander of the city watch himself confronted me, emboldened by my empty scabbard, but he had only three men with him, and I still had my knife. I slashed one man's face open when he laid his hands upon me and rode through the others. As I spurred for the gates, I heard Janus slint, now beheaded himself shouting for them to go after me. Once outside the Red Keep, the streets were congested, else I might have gotten away clean. Instead, they caught me at the river gate. The gold cloaks who had pursued me from the castle shouted for those at the gate to stop me, so they crossed their spears to bar my way. And you without your sword, how did you get past them? A true knight is worth ten guardsmen. The men at the gate were taken by surprise. I rode one down, wrenched away his spear, and drove it through the throat of my closest pursuer. The other broke off once I was through the gate, so I spurred my horse to a gallop and rode hell-bent along the river until the city was lost to sight behind me. That night I traded my horse for a handful of pennies and some rags, and the next morning I joined the stream of small folk making their way to King's Landing. I'd gone out the mud gate, so I returned through the gate of the gods, with dirt on my face, stubble on my cheeks, and no weapon but a wooden staff. In rough spun clothes and mud cake boots, I was just one more old man fleeing the war. The gold cloaks took a stag from me and waved me through. King's Landing was crowded with small folk who'd come seeking refuge from the fighting. I lost myself amongst them. I had a little silver, but I needed that to pay my passage across the narrow sea. So I slept in seps and alleys and took my meals in pot shops. I let my beard grow out and cloaked myself in age. The day Lord Stark lost his head, I was there, watching. Afterward, I went into the great sep and thanked the seven gods that Joffrey had stripped me of my cloak. Wow. Hey, Micah. Will you read yeah. me all of these books always? Forever? <laughs> <laughs> always. <laughs> Just like before we record, just read the chapters to me. That would be helpful. Mm -hmm. So, so Loki embarrassed and sell me. Loki was went back there. inside of Kings, yeah, and watched. He's got to see it all, which is wild. I mean, I'm not surprised that he was able to take down those guardsmen because what he said was true. But I feel like he overemphasizes sometimes the strength of a knight and underemphasizes the strength of himself. And uh, you know what a what a what a decision maker what a craftsman of fate riding hellbent along the river till he was far away to eventually disguise himself and come back into the city to keep close watch on his enemies well and he's old like no no offense to him <laughs> but like this isn't some young knight who's 
taking people down basically with his bare hands. You know, he's mm. he's not a young guy, which I think is so cool. But that's yeah, I mean it shows he has wit. You wonder how that level of intellect assisted him in addition to his ability to be a badass knight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during his heyday, but you know, but I really like the respect that he has for Ned. I mean, it, it, it's brought up multiple times. I mean, the, the fact that he says, I was there at the Sept of Baylor and I'm happy I was not part of the Kingsguard because he's essentially saying that there's no way that he would have been able to stand and watch that happen had he been in that position. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the main reasons why we like the character of Barristan Selmy so much. And this was a huge moment for the story. And I hope that it plays a serious part in the hopefully eventual conversations to come when, when Danny is sort of scoffing at Ned Stark because Ned Stark was handed to the king when she was ordered to be killed and uh, had an assassin sent after her. And he made a point. He made a point. He said, your grace, Eddard Stark played a point in your father's fall, but he bore you no ill will. When the eunuch Varys told us that you were with child, Robert wanted you killed, but Lord Stark spoke against it. Rather than countenance with the murder of children, he told Robert to find himself another hand. Mm-hmm. He basically mm-hmm. said, fire me, if that's what we're going to do with Daenerys. Right. Which she kind of scoffed at, and I was a little surprised. Yeah, she said, it's Lannister Stark, what's the difference? I don't really blame her. But I think it's important to hear for her to hear that. Well, I mean, that's partially because the influence that, because the, all that she knows about the great houses of Westeros are from her brother, you right. know? And of, of course, Ver- Viserys is going to talk so much crap against Stark, Lannister, all of them, no matter who did what. Um, no matter if the Lannisters or Starks or Baratheons or anyone had a reason to overthrow the Targaryens, um, just knowing the kind of personality that Viserys has, that's the kind of person that he would be against other great houses, especially ones that are in better power than them than him, and especially ones that helped overthrow what he believes is rightfully his kingdom. And so I understand why Daenerys has this point of view, but um, Selmy makes a pretty, you know, he, he again says the Lannister is the one who blah, 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 and not the Starks. And she's like, well, what's the difference? Uh, between all of them but so he made he made a concerted effort and i feel like this wasn't placed in here randomly so if she does head over to westeros later and maybe does come in contact with someone like john or sansa etc i feel like this will have been part of one of the reasons why she has a more open mind toward the starks that might be wishful thinking but i feel like it wasn't random yeah I i think it i think it also just reiterates the fact of how important it is that danny needs to surround herself with people that she can trust and people who have her best interests in mind. People who aren't just going to play to her beliefs already. Like for him to be able to defend someone who is her enemy, essentially. Um, I think those are important views for her to take into consideration. Dragons? Yes. At least two of them appear <laughs> before the end of this chapter. I was thinking when re- rereading for the show today, how much these chapters that involved the cell of Rhaegal and Viserion Viserion stood out to me when reading the books and sort of just how much of the details I remembered specifically and how cool it was to finally come across this level of writing in relation to these sort of mythic creatures inside of A Song of Ice and Fire. If you were with the books since 96, you know, it's been a long time coming for these chapters. And so rereading them again, 
uh, was was a real treat seeing the dragon's ember eyes burning and their the the color of their scales and the the hushed voice that we hear in our mind when thinking of Drogon. It's just cool. No, absolutely. And I the part that blew me away is how she describes that it took three days to carry carry and chain Rhaegal. I thought that was crazy. I mean, just the as you're saying, as you're describing these mythical creatures, just a reminder of the great power that they hold and how much work Danny has to do <laughs> to train them or to get her under her get them under her control. Four people died trying to cap capture uh Drogon. That's crazy. That's crazy. Danny I mean still that's... escaped, I mean. It's not like <laughs> right. they're able to get under the control. shadow. Who perches atop the Great Pyramid where the Harpy used to be. Just lords over the city of Marine. It's great. Like Viserion, just throw him a few oxen. <laughs> He's like a Snorlax. And, just... and they grow to the size yeah. of wherever they, wherever they are. We learned that. Well, we were told the dragons keep growing by Barristan, uh, depending on what, whichever spaces they're inside of. And they're soon to fill this cell that could house 500 men. It's just... <laughs> I don't know. I, I know that this was hard for Danny, but it was also hard for me to read this. I don't know if it was for you guys, but I just wanted her to get those dragons out of there. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then I thought that's where the guilt tied in, right? When she was thinking about, hopefully I'm saying the name right, Hazia, the young girl uh, who was burned. And, you know, she was she was going through and, and she was talking about, um, it was the tail end of the conversation with, with Barristan talking about um you know the lannisters and the starks and she says all the dogs are just as guilty and you know the guilt really hits her and so i wonder was it really guilt about what had happened to this young girl or was she just feeling guilty about the fact that she had chained up viserion and Rhaegal and and she needed to go kind of see how they were doing yeah maybe just guilt in general yeah i think it's probably a little bit of both because i think that she feels this um, need to live up to her heritage and to be able to train these guys and control these guys. You think about, I mean, history tells us that it's possible for her to be able to wield these dragons. And so I think that her inability to do that probably brings her a lot of guilt when it comes to children that are dying. Um, but then also the fact that she has to chain them up because of that. So I think that's probably, it's probably a little bit of both. I think that so much of her power rests on her ability to use them, use her dragons, mm. and she doesn't have that right now. And that's got to be stressful. Look at these damn things. Yeah, it's going to be no easy task. Like Chia pets. Yeah. They really wanted to put them in these cells, though, in the cell, because it took a lot of time and a lot of effort. And damn, just damn. Well, speaking of cells. Let's just start with the beginning of Reek's first chapter. I'm just going to read this. I... The rat squealed as he bit into it, squirming wildly in his hands, frantic to escape. The belly was the softest part. He tore at the sweet meat, the warm blood running over his lips. It was so good that it brought tears to his eyes. His belly rumbled and he swallowed. By the third bite, the rat had ceased to struggle and he was feeling almost content. Ugh. I hate that. I hate the by the third bite, the rat had ceased to struggle. Ugh. <clears throat> we're, we're talking about earlier this chapter and how intense it is. And I feel like it's not often that you have physical reactions when you're reading books. Words on a page. This whole entire chapter, I just felt like not great. George R. R. Yeah. Martin is a master, you know, yeah. he, he, he understands so much about humans and suffering and just, Oh damn pain. And it's, it's you good, can literally but not read good. 
this entire chapter and just <laughs> that could that could be our discussion because as, as mentioned earlier just the the description of reek he's just completely de-evolved as a human being to the point where mm-hmm. he is primal in nature right he's yeah. you know i mean i just, like i said i just went through this chapter and highlighted so many different one lines like his mouth was full of blood and flesh and hair tearing off one of the rat's legs you know he crouched down in a corner of his cell clutching his prize under his chin you know it's just theon man i know and What's he's been ruined you, so much that he's lost his mind he is he a can't remember ruin. his name he doesn't know how long he's been there whether it's been half a year he feels like do we he's... know how long he's been there because isn't this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this the first time that we realize that he's still alive? A clash of kings. So yeah. we've gone, and especially now that we're all the way into Dance of Dragons, I mean, it's been a long time since we've even known that Theon, where he is, or what he is, or if he's alive. So I think that also realizing that he's here in the situation is also a, a pretty big surprise. When you realize that this primal man is someone that we've hated for so long and missed for so long he's been gone yeah. forever and the last time we were with him we didn't feel sorry for him at all at all what he was doing at in winterfell no who was killed in winterfell because of him all that was falling apart the plans that were falling apart and this was a, a book before what happened to rob but you know these are the, the the things that were there so imagine you're reading a feast for crows after knowing or even if your mind is still thinking of theon Greyjoy, and then eventually just you're coming upon a chapter not even named theon coming upon a chapter named reek and this is how you're introduced to him you don't even know till mm-hmm. bits and bits into the chapter that this is even theon Greyjoy. Mm-hmm. and that realization i think is huge definitely like holy shit this chapter the ruin the wisp that Theon Greyjoy has become the the torture. I mean, of course, the television show is a different medium, and we don't like to compare the two. But I, I, I don't know. Don't you think? I feel like they could have done more. I mean, on, on, it was horrible what they did. But Jesus Christ! Yeah, it's interesting yeah. to read this now, just after having such a heavy Ramsey Bolton season, because that just feels like nothing compared to. Nothing. I mean, you mentioned, he mentions what happened to Lady Hornwood after their wedding, that Ramsay locked her away and then she ended up eating her own fingers. Mm-hmm. And I mean, all these awful things that we see that are happening to Theon slash Reek and how his fingers are getting flayed and how he can't remember his name. There was this one moment when he, that I can't stop thinking about is he is trying to remember what his name is because he wants to be, when he is presented in front of Ramsay, wants to look good. Um, and he gets so nervous that he can't remember that he trips up the stairs and starts bleeding because um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he just he can't. I he's so that just, Yeah, it just says so much about where he's at. Yeah, it's it's pretty sad. I mean, just kind of combing through here, reading a line that says he chewed and swallowed, picking small bones from the holes in his gums where his teeth had been yanked out. It hurt uh-huh. to chew, but he was so hungry he could not stop. I mean, mm-hmm. that's rough. That's beyond rough. The torture with the skin fling later was just. I mean, you have to yeah. you have to think that you have to think that George R. R. Martin like 
I know that the, it's never no, none of this violence, none of this stuff is great. Like, would we have wanted to see it put on screen? Um, was it already gr- gr- gratuitous what we saw on screen for Theon? Yes, but what it does for the story, the depth of character in Theon Greyjoy, and the depth of character also in Ramsay Bolton, and just the 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 human element inside of this world, just how just what George is trying to like tell in this story, um, whether it's through Varamir or whether it's through a chapter like this, that depravity is deep and human emotions are, are wide and complex. And even in a fantastical world where there's swords, swords and shields and wizards and magic, uh, you know, the people inside of it are real and suffering is real and life and death is very real. And only through those kinds of like hard experiences, whether it's, reading about the young Greyjoy chewing strangely or whether it's through, you know, an epic moment of Stannis and Davos standing on the wall. Like we, we see the highs and lows and feel the, feel the highs and lows of emotions. Right. So would it have been cool to see? I mean, it's rough to say, but at the same time, it's like, look at the, through, through the Reek chapters, like just how, like, this was a great, this was a fantastic chapter, right? This was so mm-hmm. good. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. I don't know how you translate that over though. Without mm-hmm. it just being, just because think about bad. what we were just saying. Like, how do you feel reading this chapter or talking about it or listening to us talk about it? And imagine having to watch it, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's there's obviously the one scene between Reek and, and Ramsey that everybody remembers from the show. Um, but in a way, it, it, it seems like Theon is probably constantly threatened with that particular situation because you know there's there's one point where if you know he says he forgets his name he'll take another finger or he'll do worse and i wonder if that is is what the worst part is right i mean in in terms of his, him him losing his his most prized possession hmm. and you know it's just sick I mean, it yeah. comes down to it. I mean, Ramsey is just, like, I wrote down that Dreadford is, is the equivalent of like the house of pain because even Reek says that you know, he, he hears people screaming all the time and then the women scream the loudest and Hannah mentioned Lady Hornwood and just. My note is it is fucking chaos. It, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like a. It's like a psych ward gone extremely, extremely bad. It's just mm-hmm. deframed, man. Yeah. It's and fucked I, up. I think it's interesting that we get a description of what Ramsey looks like near the end of the chapter. And we already kind of knew that, but to... Fugly. Yeah. And to hear so much about him and then to get this description of him talking about how he's big bone and sloped shoulder. It said with a fleshiness to him that suggested that in later life he would run fat. Um, he's got pink and blotchy skin, a broad nose, a small mouth, long and dry and dark hair, wide lips and meaty. Um, and then talks about his ghost gray eyes that are small and close set, which only in my mind amplifies how awful he is just because he's just gross. And so to get get this description, I thought was good placement of that awful him <laughs> smiling a wet lipped smile. Ugh, I hate it. And he's got like the most fucked up crew too surrounding him. And of course, if they want to be a part of all this stuff, it's just it's just a rough place. 
just a rough place. He's wearing black and pink and he's all dressed well. And who knows how long Theon's been down there when Theon's brought mm-hmm. up by Big and Little Walder, who are equal assholes in their own regard. Well, we know they survived Winterfell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's been there long enough for Ramsay to no longer be a bastard, right? He's now right. officially Ramsay Bolton. Thanks to Joffrey, which I'm assuming was a reward for the betrayal at the Red Wedding. Well, can you just imagine the two of them high fiving? Ramsey Bolton and Joffrey are just like In giving hell. each other a high five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. George really made him ugly though, right? He's like, he, you know, but you read this and it's like George R. R. Martin, you think about the, the x-raying he does with his eyes when he just meets people in real life. Like shit, man, you really look into people's souls. I know. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and you mentioned little Walder, big Walder. They're so degrading to, to reek, you know, should we wash him? His Lordship likes him stinky. And just the foul smell, stench of, of him as he walks into the hall. One of the lords said he smells of night soil and stale vomit. But then at the very, very end, to make it even worse, Ramsay tells Reek that he's going to be wed to Arya, which at this point, not knowing what the outcome could be or would be, the fact that then thinking that somebody like Arya or a fake Arya has to come into this situation. Um, I think it just makes it even worse. Yeah, that's rough. We did learn that Theon crushed on Sansa back in the day. <laughs> she <laughs> was the did. pretty one. If that's any consolation to this chapter at all. That might be the only cute thing that happened. I mean, amidst mm-hmm. all of the, the, the horror, uh, the small thought back to his younger days at Winterfell, uh, which I thought was very brave of him inside of the mindset that he's having now. And we can see whispers, stirrings inside of him of, you know, how do you not, no matter how bad you're tortured, forget yourself or forget. How, how do you forget yourself completely? How do you not remember some of it, especially when you're being sort of thrust back into that situation with with Arya? Not smart by Ramsay Bolton. They should have mm-hmm. just killed Theon, like they said, like they were telling him, like you killed the dog that that comes like after you that betrays you. But Ramsay is so uh, obsessed with with making Theon suffer, with making Reek suffer. Uh, and sort of parading him around as a prize that, I don't know, I hope that it comes back to bite him, but we just don't know yet. I just don't know. But I think that to your point about about Reek remembering his days at Winterfell, I think that's so important if he's going to make it out of this alive. Because keeping yourself sane and keeping remembering who you are and remembering that you are a, a person, I think is going to be one small piece of, not hope necessarily, but just something that he can hold on to. Otherwise, you know, what does he have? Yeah. And I think he says as much, you know, at least in the part of his internal monologue, you know, he can take my fingers and my toes. He can put out my eyes and slice my ears off, but he cannot take my wits unless I let him. Those Ironborn, man. I know. They are Ironborn. Mm -hmm. This is just, uh, I know we've said it, but just a really tough, challenging chapter to read. And it just shows who Ramsey Bolton is at his core and the fact that he likes to toy with reek as much as he likes to inflict pain upon him right there's the fake escape with oh yeah kyra yeah Mm -hmm. yeah what's the line something about how ramsey liked to hunt two-legged prey yeah or something like that man that was (laughs) that was messed up i mean i think we could we could probably go on and on about the yeah. lines can, in this chapter. We could just sit here and like <laughs> about hate everything about this chapter. How despicable of a human being 
Ramsey Bolton is mm-hmm. the intense description of of flaying and the parts of the body that Theon slash Reek has lost since he's been captive here. So thanks to for listening to our podcast. It's <laughs> yeah. a very pleasant experience. We well, hope that you're reading along with us. It? I mean, how what what do you pick as your own for this chapter? Because I feel like nothing. You know what I mean? I'm gonna give my own I know that it's terrible, but I I can't even so this is sort of to George and to Ramsey Bolton. But um I I couldn't have gone inside of my mind to the degree to be like what's the worst way to to torture someone i'm sure that there are worse ways but this might be the worst that i've ever read um when he flays theon slowly enough uh to like have all the flesh on his finger exposed down to the the hilt of it um enough for it to dry and crack and um i've had a i've had a skin graft before and i've had so i've had i've been flayed to a certain degree after uh uh, injuries in the past and it's terrible i mean and th- this was done medically mm-hmm. and just imagine the crude nature that the ramsey did this she left his finger exposed let it crack and then would continue it on until dion you know uh, <laughs> this is it's hard talk to talk about it how do you cut off someone's fingers okay that's already okay how do you make cutting off someone's fingers even worse by having them beg you to do it for them and he finds a way for Theon and all of his other victims to beg for Ramsay to permanently disable them. Mm-hmm. It's just like shit. Or try to bite them off themselves. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. I'll I'll go ahead give my own to the rat at the very beginning of the chapter because I thought it was a bit ironic uh, in a way that Theon slash Reek was eating a rat when he in fact himself was a rat for a period of time in this series at least as it related to the Starks and to Winterfell yeah so um yeah to to Lord Bolton's rat because we learned that all the rats in the Dreadfort belong to Bruce <laughs> the moose I'm gonna give my own to Reek slash Theon um for keeping his wits about him as much as possible and I know he kind of dips in and out of uncertainty about whether or not the Walder boys are the original guys or his the children of the people who've been coming to get him. But I think that him working to keep his wits about him, I say own to him for that. All right. Maybe he'll make it out alive. Now about for Danny. Yeah, let's bring the mood up in this place, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I came out of like, nowhere. Please. <laughs> I got to give my own to um, Barristan Selmy. Just... Uh, not only for his badass recounting of how he was able to elude uh, the City Watch and then re-enter King's Landing and escape out east, but just for his constant calm demeanor and counsel uh, to Daenerys. And I feel like we will continue to learn more about her family, more about Rhaegar, more about the Mad King as the story progresses. And it'll be vital to her success moving forward. That's hard to beat. So I'll just pick many. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Uh, um, Danny is jealous of a sword hilt. She says that. I am jealous of a sword hilt to herself. When Dario rubs his fingers across his naked lady daggers. We didn't talk about that much, but she misses Dario and the Haras. And hopes that he hasn't betrayed her. So thanks, Quaith, for again. Stressing everyone out. Stressing everyone out. <laughs> Uh, Quaith also for showing up 
That was pretty cool. Whether you're real or not, you're pretty cool. Uh, Danny for sniffing at Resnack. And just that was hilarious. <laughs> also to George for writing that. That was also hilarious. Uh, Hisdar Zolorak for like bringing all the big guns. You shaved. You wore normal stuff instead of your tokar. And uh, Danny also, for, it's too many owns. She says your barber has served you well. Like that was, yeah, that was funny. Uh, and for bringing all those people there, like what a way to change her mind about the fighting pits that worked. I don't know. I just think that he was a really smart guy. I could keep going. Someone That's, else. You, co- you covered all the possible owns. <laughs> I'm so. sorry. Hmm, you said you didn't know pick? what yours was. I don't know. I want to give my own to, I know you, Zach, you just said this, but I want to give my own to all the seven, um, of Marines best fighters. And because I just think them rolling up probably looks so cool. Um, so my owns to them. Because I just imagine them as like cage fighters and like with outlandish gold belts around their waist, which is probably isn't true. But you're not, watching too um, much WWE. Yeah. <laughs> so we also got a bunch of owns from you, the listeners. Can't wait to read your recons. And the first one comes from Kaylee Marks over on Facebook, who says, Own for the Danny chapter goes to Viserys for still controlling Danny's perspective of Westeros four books after he died. She needs to start listening to her advisors who actually know what's going on in Westeros like Sir Barristan, or she will never be able to rule it. She cannot rule the people if she hates the lords they fought and died for. That's smart. Yeah, very smart. Uh, Her recon goes to Theon. For staying strong and sane, quote, I must not let him drive me mad. He can take my fingers and my toes. He can put out my eyes and slice my ears off, but he cannot take my wits unless I let him. Reese Palazzolo on Facebook. Danny Ong goes to Quaith and another one of her mysterious prophecies, which is unsullied, we realize, predict a lot of what's to come and quite possibly what may still be revealed. May still be revealed. Parentheses, Murmur's Dragon. And then for Reek, my own goes to book Reek for making TV Reek look like he's been on a Sunday pleasure cruise. (laughs) (laughs) He definitely got off easy in the show. Two parts rye. Own to Danny for grabbing a drink to clear her head. Hopefully someday she will find a hand who is (laughs) like-minded. Also, future own to Reek Mm. for throwing Ramsey a great bachelor party. Hashtag Reek rhymes with unfleek. (laughs) Brienne of Tarth uh, tweeted in to say Danny own goes to Quaith. The the creepy astral projecting Mulder of Essos. Hashtag trust no one. And Farik goes to Lady Hornwood, who got off relatively easy in comparison. Hashtag om nom nom. Hashtag figures. <laughs> And then lastly, Momo on Twitter says, Reek owned to George R. R. Martin for creating characters so terrible that I can't give any of them an own without feeling like a bad person. And then owned to Danny for finally realizing that dragons don't make good pets. Maybe she should get a cat. Duly noted. Maybe a maybe. lion instead. Mm, maybe. Well, thanks for sending in your owns and for following along with us. I know that these chapters were, well, at least one of them were particularly difficult to live through, uh, to read through. But. They're fun. I, enjoy, I mean... <laughs> Maybe fun's not the right word. Yeah, they were fun. It makes for good they discussion. It's, it makes for good discussion. Yeah. That's why we love this series. They were interesting. Yeah. And they keep on getting better, which is, I don't know. It's just, I was so excited when I read today and uh, just glad to be doing it. Seems like it only gets better because next week we uh, flip back to A Feast for Crows and we have the Kraken's daughter. Yep. Yes. And Cersei Trace. That's going to be quite the pair. I can't wait. Listeners, uh, don't forget to uh, send in your owns and uh, 
You can do so in a number of ways. Tweet at us at Game of Owns. Scroll up on our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns or shoot us an email at contact at Game of If you'd like to listen along to our other podcast, A Squad of Ice and Fire, it is the fabled, duly noted favorite podcast of Hannah. Yep. <laughs> if you want to know how Hannah is an expert solar panel installer, you should definitely check out our Squadcast, which is also Hannah's favorite podcast, over at patreon.com slash goo. She's a pro. So if you need any solar panels installed, call <laughs> Hit Hannah. Hit me up. Soon. <laughs> Hit me up. Sorry, Reek has just depressed us beyond belief at the end of the show. The feast continues. continues.